Thanks for joining us for our podcast, Putting It Together. My name is Christina Clayton, one of the co-directors of the Northwest Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. We are part of a national network to disseminate and implement evidence-based practices for mental health into the field. We are coming to you from Seattle, Washington, and our Northwest region covers Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. However, in this virtual world, we have connected with people from all over, and we are very grateful to connect with you today. One of our goals is to provide free training and technical assistance in mental health topics. And now we are offering a podcast because we were told there weren't many podcasts out these days. Just kidding. But truly, we hope you hear some useful information and or inspiration that helps you put it together when working in this challenging and amazing field we call mental health. You can find out more about us, including our live event calendar, free online courses, resource library, and newsletter sign up by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. A new toolkit titled Whole Person Care for People Experiencing Homelessness and Opioid Use Disorder was released by SAMHSA in August 2021. It provides an overview of homelessness, opioid use disorder, and the core elements of a whole person care framework for supporting recovery and housing stability. It explores what it means to be person-centered, trauma-informed, recovery-oriented, racially equitable, non-stigmatizing, housing-focused, peer-integrated, and self-compassionate in our work. Luckily, we know one of the lead authors, Ken Crable. After working as a behavioral health practitioner in homeless services for 18 years and training many of us doing outreach as well, he shifted to training full-time. For the past two decades, he has been developing curricula and facilitating in-person and online training, and he is a beacon of hope, humility, reflection, and inspiration. I hope our episode today helps you start to put together your own framework for helping others and for your own resiliency as these things are connected. We are very grateful to you and your continued work. Thank you for listening. The whole person care toolkit that you actually helped create along with others. And so we're excited to hear more about that. What is a key lesson that you have learned because you've been at this a while working with people healing from trauma? Yeah. Thanks, Christina, for that introduction. Um, Yeah. Trauma is one of those things that uh, midway through my own career and working in homelessness, I became acutely aware of. And uh, so becoming trauma-informed, healing-centered has been a big emphasis uh, in these last number of years. I think there are several things I think of. One is we each have to continue doing our own work uh, from what we need to do to heal from our own trauma. And if you happen to think you're not a person who lives with trauma, uh, I invite you to uh, ask your neighbors and others around you (laughs) what that might be. Um, But one of the things we know is that when our own personal trauma is not transformed, it becomes transmitted oftentimes. And and that can be uh, uh, disadvantageous for people. Uh, Another thing I think of is just be real, be human, and and be vulnerable in that Brene Brown sense of the word, right? Of be self-honest and recognize that that's actually a tool for healing for others. Uh, They need to see you in your own imperfection and your own journey 
Uh, and, you know, self-disclosure for some of you comes with a job, maybe for others it doesn't, but we all self-disclose just in the way we are with people anyway. So there's that. And then I just think um, so critical is to practice uh, with compassion coupled with a healthy detachment. That is walking alongside people in solidarity with them, but not becoming so immersed in their lives that we begin to be drug <laughs> under, if you will. Uh, and not to take too much credit for the successes as well. But the key is we, we need to not try to fix people because we can't do that. And, and that's the impulse that many of us have is helping people. That's the truth. Um, I've said this quote, I'm sure you've said it before as well, that whole idea of approaching a person and thinking, I wonder what happened to them versus why are you acting like this? Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of reasons. Um, and that leads me to the next question. When creating this content, when doing training, fill in the blank, how, how, do you, how did you approach addressing health disparities in this framework of the toolkit, of how you train folks, how you approach doing the helping professions? Because it's, it's massive, you know? And so I know it's woven in. Um, what were you all keeping in mind? It is. And I, I think uh, promoting equity in general is another way of talking about addressing health disparities. But again, it starts with yourself, right? Your own attitudes, your own looking in the mirror and, and saying, you know, what do I believe? What do I think? Uh, what do I find is coming up in my mind that um, I don't want it to be there, but I, I need to deal with it. And, and for me personally, as a, a white male, it's looking at the trappings of white dominant cultural thinking uh, particularly, and, and I would say really addressing the inherent arrogance and entitlement that comes with being white. And that's kind of putting it starkly, but I think that's, that's what's at the heart of it. And then organizationally, I think, you know, doing things that take a deep dive into the health disparities or, or the disparities in general within our own organizations, um, hiring more people, black and brown people for leadership positions, for instance, is a, an area we can certainly uh, get into. I think hiring more certified peers, specialists is fabulous and <laughs> a wonderful way to do that as well. And then at a systems level, any anti-discriminatory work we can do uh, to promote better access and outcomes um, for black and brown people in particular and, and people who are marginalized in general is so critical. So, yeah. Yeah, and and I think... Just to piggyback on that, I think thinking as we as we try not to fix, but we want to help, you know, imagining what people have been through, not just in a trauma lens, but in a disparities, a racism, oppression lens. As you've noted, this is this is going to inform and affect our relationship, especially if we don't think about it or be informed about that and what that could mean mm -hmm. um, and how we interpret our relationship regarding housing first and a harm reduction model, what are your thoughts about providing support for folks using substances in housing programs? Um, asking because I just read an article that 60% of motel deaths that occurred during the pandemic were attributed to overdoses. And I know certainly in our local Seattle area, we've heard nothing but just tragic, tragic outcomes around, you know, fentanyl, opioid overdose, being isolated, having, you know, less oversight and staff around with different kind of uh, 
shelter environments or what have you? Well, it's a great question. And I think many of you could answer it too. I I think there's no question that opiate overdose is a huge epidemic right now. Um, Isolation, living alone is one of the most dangerous ways to use without having somebody present. And of course, promoting housing first. Uh, Well, people can live on their own. If, If you have a fixed site housing, you might want to also foster a lot of community kinds of things and, and really begin to educate people about using in as safe a way as possible. I, I guess I would just say around housing too, that permanent supportive housing in which there is a harm reduction model used is not the only kind of housing we can provide. Uh, we certainly need to provide options for sober housing for people who want that. But those of you who know the 1811 project, East Lake project in Seattle, uh, you know, it, it has combined harm reduction uh, with providing housing and basic needs. And, you know, for some people, that's the stepping stone they need to at least survive and then to um, potentially take a look at their use of, of substances. Or if that's something they choose not to do, at least to live life with a, a bit more dignity than on the streets. But yeah, it, these are complicated, complex issues. But I, I don't think we want to promote staying on the streets over housing because it's less likely you'll overdose on the streets, which I don't think is, is what you were, at, were saying, but I think there is something to be said for the camaraderie that some people do have on the streets where using does become safer in some respects. So you've been in the field for a little bit, as I said, helping, teaching, inspiring so many others, um, including myself. What's bringing joy and light into your work life these days? Well, let me first say, these are really hard times, <laughs> dark times uh, in terms of the light. Uh, I'm very fond of Leonard Cohen, and one of his lyrics is there's uh, this this idea that uh, everything has a crack in it, and that's how the light gets in, right? And so I, what gives me light is looking for those cracks. And there are two areas that I, I think I would just point out. One is that I'm totally enamored, if you will, uh, by my current privilege of working alongside people with lived experience who are peers, who are telling their stories, who are, they've come alive again, you know, and, and I feel enlivened as a result of that as well. And um, I think also what I'm noticing is that whereas we all bring a lot to the field and have a lot to offer, oftentimes people who have been to hell and back, if you put it, want to put it that way, uh, have have developed what we sometimes call post-traumatic growth. And, and that is a wisdom and a deep sort of understanding and insight and, and aliveness that uh, is just, I don't know, I, I find it uh, really compelling. And, and, and the same with the work in the anti-racist work, uh, promoting equity. I think for me, I, I regret that this hasn't been part of my life until very much recently, as many of us, I think, particularly who are white, uh, have recognized that there's so little we know and so much, so little we've recognized. And so just this raised awareness and becoming more actively involved uh, is, is something that's a form of light for me. Yeah. Well, and just a reminder, I'm sure um, our 
staff will put it in the chat as well. But we have another webinar next week that people may or may not know about where we do have a panel of people with lived experience. And I think that's fantastic that you're bringing that to us as well, because certainly it's been my mission at the center here to bring those kind of voices of people who aren't always heard in the mental health field or in psychiatry or training um, venues. It's not new, um, but I think it's it's crucial to have you know true lived experience in that experience for uh, learning. So we sort of covered this a little bit. It strikes me as we try to learn better ways to help others, we're helping ourselves, or hopefully we are helping ourselves and staying sharp as our, you know, as our method of helping. I also hope, <clears throat> excuse me, I think this pandemic has talk about disparities is just the field in general, the direct services field, people are already not paid enough. They are not sustaining in the career. And so I'm really hoping that, you know, as we, as we can try to empower and uplift people to feel like they have resilience, how can we put these skills together that we've discussed to be effective in the long haul? Yeah, I think that long haul journey, in my experience, is a bunky, uh, rocky road. <laughs> and I've had to, you know, look for different sources of inspiration and renewal and resiliency. Um, but I do think it, it comes down to being serious about being self-compassionate, uh, about putting ourselves in a place of understanding that unless we ourselves can bring our best selves forward, uh, we're not likely to be as helpful or effective. And I'm often drawn to the quote by Audrey Lord, who says, um, caring for myself is not self-indulgent. It's not selfish. It, it's about self-preservation. And then beyond that, she says, it's an act of political warfare. And I, I don't know precisely what she meant by that, but I think it's preparing ourselves for the larger you know, work that needs to be done to change systems and speak the truth and, and uh, make a difference in, in the world be beyond our interpersonal relationships. And so, um, yeah, I, I think there are many ways to be self-compassionate. And for me, they keep changing in some ways because they get, I don't want to get bored with my self-compassion work that I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I just want to give a, a shout out to everyone on, especially those who've been doing direct work through this pandemic, continue to fight the good fight. And, um, you know, we hope that today you, you're able to get a little time to, um, fill your cup, if you will, and to uh, find some resilience as you continue to work. So thank you, Ken, for this great conversation. It's always fantastic and rewarding to talk with you. We could do it all day. Uh, but thank you so much, Ken. This has been fantastic. Thank you, everyone out there. Please take care of yourself so you can continue taking care of others. And we will see you next time. You can find resources related to the episode in our show notes. So be sure to check those out. Learn more about us by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. You can also follow us on social media at NWMHTTC. This broadcast is brought to you by the Northwest MHTTC, which is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. However, the content does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to connecting with you again so we can keep putting it together. Take care.